This program's about the impossible. There's a good chance that you believe in the impossible. In 1967, Dr. George Wald won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Dr. Wald said, When it comes to the origin of life, there are two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago, but that led us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. This Nobel Prize-winning scientist rejected the science that God had to be the creator of life, the only possible explanation for you. Me, I'm a Christian because I don't believe in the impossible. Stay tuned and let's explore the universe as it really is. I'm Paul and this is C-Y-K-I-A-E. This was probably the most shocking thing I've ever heard. It made me feel ashamed to be an Australian. The words that I'm about to play are spoken by Sir Ronald Wilson. He was the chair of the Bring Them Home report issued by the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission in April 1997, giving its findings into what were called, and are known by everyone in this country, if not the world today, as the Stolen Generations. The spoken words that I'm about to play aren't exactly the words that appeared at page 37 of that report, but they're pretty close, and they're what the focal point of the findings delivered by him and Mick Dodson, the Social Justice Commissioner, the co-author of that report, wrote in their findings. We estimate that it was at least one in ten children, but anything up to one in three children uh, were actually removed. But the more telling point is that experienced people have assured us that there is probably not one Aboriginal community, um, not one Aboriginal family or community in Australia today that has not been scarred by the separation policy. Okay, just to repeat what you heard, the findings of the Bringing Them Home report was that at least one in ten Indigenous children, but possibly as high as one in three, were actually forcibly removed from their families by authorities of the government. And according to Sir Ronald Wilson and Mick Dodson, there is probably not one Aboriginal family in Australia today that has not been scarred by that forced separation policy. Wow! The government activities of forcibly removing children from their Indigenous families that are the subject of the report that covers the period from about 1910 through even to the government of Gough Whitlam between 1972 and 1975, and maybe even up to 1980. So this was happening definitely for 60 years, possibly up to 70 years. I was born in 1950, so I lived through between 22 to 30 of those years. And when I heard about the Stolen Generations report, that was news to me. 
I'd never heard about this before. At the time these things were happening, I was going to Sydney University, so I was exposed to the sorts of left-wing radical ideas that thrive in those places. And still, I never heard anything about this. Then I started my first job as a solicitor. It's such an important story that I really feel the need to cover it in some depth because, frankly, it has destroyed Australia's reputation internationally ever since the report was released. Australia is known as a country where a major genocide happened and the world views what happened in this country as being every bit as bad as what the Nazis did to the Jews in their extermination camps in Europe between 1941 and 1945. We, I mean everyone who isn't Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander or has a mixture of that blood, seems to be having to say sorry to these people every chance we get for what the white people who were running our country at that time were getting up to, and so we should. So I started to dig into the story, and in this and over the next episodes, I'm going to share with you what I've found out. You should know, because what I've found out is even more surprising than what you've just heard. It was in 1900 that Archie Roach made his first recording of a song. The song was called Took the Children Away. He collaborated with the famous Paul Kelly. Then in 2020, Archie Roach released an album on the occasion of the 30th anniversary of the release of the Took the Children Away song. He also brought out, available through our ABC, the Archie Roach Stolen Generation Educational Resources to help our kids understand what happened. Later, that song came to the consciousness of Adam Briggs, He was only four years old when the song was released, too young for it to mean anything to him then, but it really hit him when he grew into adulthood. What really struck a chord with him, when he was old enough, were these words in the song. This story's right. This story's true. I would not tell lies to you. So let's just dive in and see what the story of the Stolen Generation's is all about. The big turning point for the Stolen Generations came with the discovery that it had happened. Peter Reed, today Professor Reed, in 1980 had the inspiration to write a paper called The Lost Generations. Peter's talents, which were obvious in his professional work, didn't extend to marketing because his wife, J. Arthur, I hope I'm not crossing any lines calling her that, but I'm old-fashioned, thought that the word stolen had a much better ring to it, more grabbing power. In my life experience, it's often wise to listen to suggestions from your wife for many reasons. And Peter Reed made the change. Oh, happy day. So the lost generations became the stolen generations. Lost involves blame, I guess on the part of the parents. Stolen means someone else is to blame. It was the quantum shift of the narrative that would pay big dividends. You should be surprised to hear that what was to prove the most decisive shattering of the white European culture in Australia had its demolition begun in an amazingly short 20-page 
pamphlet that Peter was able to knock up in just one day. Well, you can guess what happened next, immediately after he'd published that pamphlet. Nothing. But life's like that. Time's needed. The right people have to see it. After all, Andrew Fleming discovered penicillin in 1928, published a paper about it in 1929, but it took until 1943, 14 years, before something that important got full recognition. The story of the stolen generations got out because, in 1982, Peter Reed and Coral Umara Edwards, an indigenous person who had been raised in Cootamundra Girls' Home. I hope I remember to come back to that place and tell you more about it in relation to the Stolen Generations. Set up a body called Link Up. Their website says, We are a dedicated team offering Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people the chance to reconnect with family and understand their identity. Their ball, Link Up's ball, really got rolling when Coral addressed a meeting of the National Aboriginal Consultative Council to see if they would fund their new link-up venture. There were 40 mostly middle-aged Aboriginal community elders at that meeting. As a part of a sales pitch, Coral threw in the story told in Peter Reed's pamphlet about the stolen generations. Since no one sitting in the audience in that room had ever heard that story before, or knew anything about the narrative that Coral was unfolding for them, they were stunned and hooked. To put this revelation into perspective, I'm going to be taking a quick look back at the high points of Aboriginal activism and involvement with the running of matters concerning the welfare of Aboriginals. I'll go back to the 1930s, 1940s and 1950s in this program, and how important the Stolen Generations has been to the Aboriginals. First up, I'm going to look at William Ferguson, Walter Page and Pearl Gibbs. They actually served as directors of the Aborigines Welfare Board of New South Wales, which is one of the bodies identified by Peter Reid as being involved in the Stolen Generations genocide. First, William Ferguson, known as Bill Ferguson. He was born on 24 July 1882 and died on 4 January 1950. He's described on the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, which I'll call AITSIS, as the man who founded the Aboriginal Progressive Association and led protests at the 1938 National Day of Mourning. He would become one of the most famous and important Aboriginal rights activists in Australian history. On 27 June 1937, he launched the Aboriginal Progressive Association. The focus of that body was highlighted with the Day of Mourning and Protest, held on Australia Day 26 January 1938, the 150th anniversary of Governor Phillip arriving at Botany Bay. The flyer for the event lists its primary objectives, reading, We appeal to the Australian nation of today to make new laws for the education and care of Aborigines, and we ask for a new policy which will raise our people to full citizen status and equality within the community. These were the big issues concerning him then. There was no mention in the flyer for that event 
or any other historic contemporaneous document of the Aboriginal Progressive Association that I've been able to find that raises the issue of children being forcibly taken from their parents. He and the other two Aboriginals I'm going to be talking about became members of the Aboriginals Welfare Board, a New South Wales state government body. Wikipedia says that this board could appoint protectors, whose powers varied from time to time under various acts of parliament, but broadly it says, protectors of Aborigines were appointed by the board under the conditions laid down in the various acts. In theory, protectors of Aborigines were often empowered to undertake legal proceedings on behalf of Aboriginal people, dictate where Aboriginal people could live or work, and keep all wages earned by employed Aboriginals. The ATSIS website says this, During the 1920s, Bill became increasingly frustrated at the powers held by the New South Wales Aborigines Protection Board, APB, which had the authority to remove children from families because their parents were of Aboriginal descent. But based on what I've seen from historical documents, that piece of material is a recent invention. It's created to reflect the emergence of the idea from Peter Reid that there was, were, stolen generations. The Aboriginal Progressive Association lasted until 1948 when it ceased to operate. It appears that no actions taken by Bill Ferguson could be said to relate to any issue of what Peter Reid called the stolen generations. Bill Ferguson was undoubtedly in a strong position to know what was happening in the Aboriginal community and to do something about that issue, if it was really an issue during perhaps the years that Peter Reid would describe as some of the worst. If every Aboriginal family was affected by it, as Sir Ronald Wilson told us at the beginning of this program, I couldn't find it mentioned by Bill Ferguson, who lived through 40 years of stolen generations at the highest level for the Aboriginal community. I think that's odd. That's as an active reformer, the most important issue dramatically affecting Aboriginals. Didn't attract his attention or get even a comment from him. What do you think? Do you think that's strange? Another prominent Aboriginal activist that we need to look at was Walter Page, who also sat on the board of the Aborigines Welfare Board. So let's see what he did, if anything, about the stolen generations. Walter Page was another Aboriginal member of the New South Wales Aboriginal Welfare Board. He was born on 1 January 1904 and died on 1 January 1956, which is impressive. He was good mates with Bill Ferguson, so much so that he wouldn't stand against him for the board position when there was only one vacancy and it was between him and Bill who'd get it. There's an article posted on the ATSIS website from a contemporary article with a eulogy to the passing of Walter Page on 9 March 1956. The article has a lot of weight since it was written before Peter Reid's article announcing the stolen generations scandal. What it has to say is clearly relevant to the issue of whether Australian federal and state governments were in fact practicing genocide against the Aboriginals, including the board that he was sitting on. It reads in part, at the last meeting which he, that's Walter Page, attended, 
When saying goodbye to the other members, Mr Page said that he had always imagined that the board was some terrible monster. But since he had been a member, he had learned that he was only one of the representatives of the Aborigines and that every member was on their side. He recognised now that occasionally treatment might not meet with the approval of some, but whatever was done was done with one object, the good of the Aborigines in general. I don't think any comfort can be taken from the parting words of Mr Page to suggest that he thought genocide was being practised against the Australian Aboriginals. He'd lived for 46 years of the stolen generation's genocide. Not only didn't he mention it, but as you just heard, he congratulated the board for doing everything they could for the good of Aborigines in general. I think that probably rules out trying to murder them to extinction. So I have one more former board member of the Aborigines Welfare Board who was a part Aboriginal and an activist. Her name was Pearl Gibbs. She sat on the board of the New South Wales Aboriginal Welfare Board, one of the bodies that Peter Reid has identified was involved in the genocide of the stolen generation. She was there at the time of Bill Ferguson and Walter Page. Bill Gibbs was born in 1901 and died on 28 April 1983. So she lived from the beginning of the stolen generation's genocide until they had ended. She served on the Aboriginal Welfare Board of New South Wales between 1954 and 1957. The Indigenous Australia website has reposted the biography from the Australian Dictionary of Biography, which I guess means that they endorse it. The biography tells us of Pearl, who had mixed blood. New legislation in 1936 widened the board's powers. That's the New South Wales Aboriginal Board. To allow the confinement of anyone apparently having an admixture of Aboriginal blood at one of its managed stations. This change meant that Pearl was now covered by the new legislation. In 1937, she travelled to Sydney and began work for the fledgling Aborigines Progressive Association with Bill Ferguson and Jack Patton. She collected information at Brawarana that assisted the association to publicise the deteriorating conditions on overcrowded reserves and to obtain an inquiry into the Protection Board. A select committee sat during 1937 and 1938. Getting that inquiry up seems to suggest that if there was a genocidal policy being implemented, she would have found out about it and worked to end it. All that she did was to have what was happening at the reserves looked into. Clearly not genocide, though. I'd expect her to have done something more significant if she'd found genocide of her own people happening. She also participated in Bill Ferguson's Day of Mourning on Australia Day 1938 that I've spoken about earlier in the program. Between 1938 and 1939, she was the secretary of the Aborigines Progressive Association. The biography says that Pearl focused her public speaking on the issues of women's and children's rights, exposing the appalling nutritional and health conditions mothers and children faced on government-managed reserves. She renewed her contact with Aboriginal apprenticed girls and worked with the middle-class white activist Joan Kingsley Strack 
to publicise the labour and sexual exploitation these girls faced as isolated domestic servants far from home. So she was exposing the appalling nutritional and health conditions mothers and children faced on government-managed reserves. But not their genocidal extermination, and interestingly, the mothers and the children are together. That's not what the Stolen Generations says happened. Again, this doesn't make sense. Pearl was also a member of the Committee for Aboriginal Citizenship. Her biography says that the committee drew many white sympathisers from militant left-wing unionists to more diversely motivated people, such as Michael Sortell, into the campaign. Pearl had a strong association with the activists Jesse Street and Faith Bandler. And the biography goes on to say, In 1956, Gibbs drew together significant people and sparked the formation of the Aboriginal Australian Fellowship, which was an energetic and stimulating advocate for Aboriginal rights and a fertile meeting place for black and white activists until the 1960s. Vice President in its first year, Pearl founded a more effective and satisfying forum than the Welfare Board. She campaigned against the continuing limits to Aboriginal civil rights, including restrictions on access to alcohol. In 1957, she worked for the petition launched by the AAF to change the Australian Constitution. Pearl was clearly a switched-on Aboriginal activist and alert to the issues affecting the Aboriginal community. But the stolen generations didn't come up on her radar. Overall, it seems that her main focus was on campaigning for Aboriginal civil rights as the most single important issue. If there was genocide going on, including on her watch on the Aboriginal Welfare Board, it clearly would have gotten her attention and action. But that didn't happen. I have to say it's hard to believe that the genocide that Peter Reid talks about was happening and that Pearl stood by and did nothing about it. She doesn't sound like that kind of person. In my next program, I'm going to have a close look at the Aboriginal activists of the 60s and 70s, the time of the big issue then of the 1967 constitutional referendum to give the Commonwealth powers in Aboriginal affairs and much more besides. If there was genocide going on, surely these new, switched-on, new guard would notice, and they'd do something to stop it. Telling the world media that Australia was exterminating its Indigenous people would probably be calculated to get the media's attention. I don't think things have changed that much since then. Gough Whitlam came to power in 1972 to 1975. If there was genocide going on, he was definitely the man to sort that out. And if it had ended by then, I don't doubt that he would have gotten onto it and brought the modern-day Australian stand-ins for the Auschwitz guards, which Peter Reid talks about, tried for crimes against humanity. But I'll tell you about this in the next program. But what I can say is that between 1910 and 1960, although the Bring Them Home report tells us that there were up to one in three Aboriginal children forcibly removed from their families, and not a single Aboriginal family was unaffected. It seems that actually not one Aboriginal noticed it. That seems kind of weird, doesn't it? Thanks for listening into this program, CYKIAE. If you missed it, you can catch up with it as a podcast on my CYKIAE, Spotify, Apple, Google, and many other podcast sites. 
Just look at my program details on CAN's FM 89.1 for clickable links. I'm Paul. Don't miss my next program because you're going to love it. I want to thank my ghostwriter, without whom this program would definitely not have been possible, the Holy Spirit. Maybe you could catch up with me at my church, the Gafcon Northern Hope Anglican Church at the Cairns and District Junior Estedford Hall, 67 Greenslopes Street, Edge Hill, some Sunday at 9am. If you liked this program, you should definitely listen in to my other explosive program, The Danger Zone, also available as a podcast on those same sites. Search Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close brackets.